Matthew chapter 28, and I do have to have my phone up here. I forgot to wear a watch again, and it's really hard to keep track of time. Impossible to keep track of time while you're talking without a watch or a clock. So I have my phone here to kind of help us keep track of it. In Matthew chapter 28, what's interesting about this passage is you read it and you're like, okay, that is a very interesting story, but after you initially read it, you might not think it's anything more than just an interesting story. But the key is always ask yourself, and this is, I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing about studying world history, any kind of history, is to think more deeply about, okay, what's really going on here in life? Like, what's, what's the bigger picture, the deeper implications? That's especially important with the passage we look at this morning, because it's four quick verses, and you might be tempted to read those and think, okay, that's really interesting that that happened, but not go any deeper, not go any further with it. But what you'll see from this story, what this story shows us, is that truth triumphs over lies. And so as we look at our theme, the theme here is the gospel is victorious despite the schemes of men. This is just one illustration of that, but this is the theme of the church. This is the theme of the church age, church history, since the resurrection of Christ. There's been many, many schemes against the gospel, against the church, and against Jesus Christ, but those always fail because the gospel, through the power of God, is victorious. Now this is going to be a very different lesson in that it's going to be a while before we get to the passage that we're actually studying. Because again, the passage itself, there's really nothing complicated about it. It's a simple historical event. You read it and you're like, okay, that's what happened. What we're going to spend a lot more time on are the deeper implications. And so it'll take a bit for us to get there. But the first thing I want us to think through and talk about as it relates to this lesson is why the reality of the resurrection matters. Because verses 11 to 15, what we're going to read here are the leaders, the Jewish leaders trying to not themselves deny the resurrection, but avoid other people from believing that the resurrection of Christ actually took place. And so the question for us is why? Like, why does the reality of the resurrection matter? Why do they care so much? Why are they trying to suppress the truth? Now, it's about discrediting God, right? What are some ways, and I'm looking for answers here, what are some ways people try to discredit God? Give me some answers. What do y'all hear? What are, do you, okay, do you ever hear people try to discredit something about God? Do you ever hear that? Okay, what are some ways they try to do that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Can you shout it out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some other ways? What about creation? 
Like, are there people out there who deny that God created? Yeah, they come up with alternative explanations for how we got here, right? God didn't create all this. All this just happened. Like, we just happened to be here. God is not creator. What are some other ways? What do they often say about the Bible? What's the no, what, what do you hear a lot about the Bible? It was written by men. God had nothing to do with it. This is just, you know, something that people got together and, and put together. It was like Emperor Constantine in like the 300s. He decided what was going to be in the Bible and he did it to control people. It's not God's word. What about the resurrection? Are there people who don't believe in the resurrection? Absolutely, right? For sure, for sure. Now here's a question to go a little bit deeper. Why? Why do people want to discredit God? Why do you think they want to discredit God? They don't want to follow his law. That's a great way to put it. People love sin. People love sin. Absolutely. They don't want to let go of being able to control their own lives. They don't want to have anyone to answer to or tell them that they're wrong. They want to be, they love their sin. They want to control their own lives. Last one. These are great. So what's interesting here, though, is when you talk to people, a lot of times, very often, most often, they're going to try to give you an intellectual reason why they don't believe God or why they don't accept the things of God. They're going to give you an intellectual reason. And sure, there are some challenges. But when it gets down to it, ultimately, this is about people love their sin. And they love being Lord of their own life. They love being in charge, having nobody to answer to. So they're going to give you intellectual reasons, but the reality is, very, listen closely to those intellectual reasons. First of all, poke at them a little and question them a little. They take as much, if not much more, faith than anything else, right? Like, you've got to have a ton of faith to believe like we just happen to be here. You got to have a ton because that makes no sense. That makes no sense that all just this just happened randomly like it just is. That makes you got to have a ton of irrational faith to believe that. So people are going to throw intellectual things but know this it's ultimately people love sin. And so we got to if you love your sin and you don't want to submit to God you can't admit that he created all this. Revelations 4.11, this is John looking at heaven's throne room in Revelation 4.11, and he says, worthy are you, Lord. Worthy is God because he created all this, and he is Lord, rightful authority over all of it. You gotta, if you want to hold on to your sin and be in control of your own life, you got to discredit the Bible because Deuteronomy Chapter 30, Moses is presenting the law to the people and he says, hey, look, I'm putting before you God's word and it is a blessing that leads to life if you obey it, but it is a curse that leads to death if you deny it. And so 
that, that has a lot of implications on your life, on who gets to control your life. And if you love sin and want to control your own life, you've got to just reject the Bible and get rid of it, right? But people deny the resurrection because Jesus made a lot of interesting claims while he was on this earth, right? One of the claims, we've studied Matthew, so we know these claims that he's made. One of the claims that Jesus made and one of the reasons people have to deny the resurrection if they don't want to submit to these claims, Jesus said we must give him 100% loyalty. 100% loyalty. And if you love your sin and you love being master of your own life, you cannot give 100% loyalty to Jesus. And so people are going to try to discredit the resurrection because if the resurrection happened, then Jesus is God, Lord, who is rightfully entitled to 100% of our loyalty. Remember he told the rich man, hey, if you want to follow me, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, Jesus wasn't there. We know from just all of the Bible, when you look at, take all of scripture into consideration, Jesus wasn't laying a formula down for everybody. Like, hey, if you ever want to be a Christian, you have to own zero, give everything away and follow me. What Jesus was driving home to this rich man who loved his stuff, who loved the things of this world and loved himself was, if you want to follow me, it takes 100% commitment. And that is the formula that applies to every single one of us. To abandon everything that this world has to offer, everything that we have in and of ourselves to follow Jesus Christ. Listen to Mark 10, 34 and 35. Jesus recognized that a lot of the people around him, the people following him, listening to him, were having a hard time understanding what being his disciple and following him was all about. So Mark 10, 34, 35, he, he summons the crowd with his disciples. He calls this whole group around him and says, look, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to hold on and be master of their own life, you're going to lose your life. It, it ends in death. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Now think about this. Jesus is saying some pretty wild stuff, right? If Jesus is not God, much of what Jesus said is absolutely absurd, crazy talk. If Jesus is not God. If, if, think about if one of us walked into this room and started to talk that way. We would make fun of you and call your parents and be like, hey, your kids lost it. They're coming in demanding people follow them. Absolutely. Like, unless Jesus is God, who he claimed to be, it's crazy talk. If any person of this world ever talks that way, you should be very, very, very afraid of them. I don't care what position of authority they're in. You should be afraid of them. So what gives Jesus the right? The fact that he is God. 
We already talked about, this is interesting, John chapter 1, the way John starts off his gospel. We talked about the importance of creation, right? And we talked about the importance of God's word. It's very fascinating how John chapter 1 ties these things together as it talks about Jesus. Listen to how John starts his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, God's word, and the word was with God. This word is a person. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And here's the word as creator. In verse 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. And just in case you're curious, who is this word? In verse 14, just a few lines down from there, John tells us this word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about, okay, what did, what did Mary, the Marys, at Wednesday night after Christ was resurrected and they ran into him in verse 9, what did the Marys do? Do y'all remember? Anybody remember something that begins with the W that they did? They fell down at his feet and worshipped Jesus. And that's not the first time Jesus has been worshipped in the Gospel of Matthew. Go back and look when he was a baby. Why did the Magi from the East come to see this person that they were told was born king of the Jews? Why did they come? To, W word, worship him. And it happens numerous times. Now, is worshiping anybody other than God okay? No. It's, poof, yeah, I mean, that's worthy of death. In fact, there's other times people try to get worship. Of course, you got all the idols, right? But think about some unique, unusual examples of people who tr others tr attempted to worship. Like Peter and Paul. There's like one time, I think, for each in Acts where they do some amazing things preaching the gospel and people actually come down and try to worship Peter. What does Peter do? He stops them. He's like, no, no, you do not worship me. You worship God. And even in Revelation, the angel is showing John around heaven because that's what Revelation is all about, is God giving John this vision of the end times and what heaven looks like. And this angel showing John around and John gets so overwhelmed, he actually tries to start worshiping this angel. And the angel's like, stop. No, you don't worship anybody but God. But when Jesus, think about the times we've seen Jesus, including just this past Wednesday night, worshiped. Does Jesus stop them? Does anybody rebuke them or stop them? No, it's a good thing. Because Jesus is God. And John 10, 30 they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And they wanted to kill him because Jesus made himself out to be God. What does all this have to do with the resurrection? Like, why are we talking about this? It feels like a big rabbit hole. Why are we talking about this? Well, this is why the reality of the resurrection matters. Can anybody claim to be God? Well, I mean, like, not should they, but I mean, literally, like, can somebody literally be like, yes, I'm God? Okay, yeah, can, can somebody allow others to worship them? Yeah, there's been a lot of people throughout history who have claimed to be God, countless. We can't count them all, 
There's a lot of people throughout history, and I mean, this all happens even this moment on this earth. People claiming to be God and having other people worship them. Plenty of people. In fact, when I was in the fifth grade, there was this guy down in Waco, not far, like just, you know, like an hour and a half down the highway, claiming to be God, had all these people worshiping him, had a bunch of people living here worshiping him, and got in this huge gunfight with the U.S. government. It was like a big deal in the fifth grade for like, I don't remember, like two months. This guy claiming to be God with all these worshipers fighting against the U.S. government until the U.S. government just burned him down and killed him. Killed him and all the people with him. Lots of people, anyone can claim to be God and have people worshiping him. But you know what happened to that guy in Waco? Just like every other person who has ever claimed to be God, he died. And guess what? He's still dead. And he's going to be dead. Anybody can be claimed to be God and anybody can accept worship. But when you die, you stay dead. There's one who has been res- claimed to be God with all the huge implications of that, claimed rightful 100% demands of loyalty. He did die. He is the only one who has been raised from the dead. And that is why the reality of the resurrection matters so much. Because it proves that this one Jesus Christ who claimed to be God, who claimed authority, who claimed you owe me 100% submission, who accepted worship, his resurrection validated, he is worthy and rightfully able to do all that. Were all these rests? They are imposters. In fact, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he was a liar. Because remember what he said in John chapter 10, no one takes away my life from me, but I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back up. If the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus is a liar. In fact, go read 1 Corinthians 15. People are wondering about the resurrection. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, hey, look, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, everything we're doing as Christians, church, Paul said everything he was doing as an apostle was utterly worthless. And more than anybody else in this world, we should be pitied because we have given our life to a delusion, to nothing. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that the resurrection declared that Jesus is the Son of God that he claimed to be. And so if the resurrection, if the resurrection is real, I can no longer cling to a love for my sin. I can no longer claim to be Lord of my own life. If the resurrection is true, I must repent of my sin and follow Christ as Lord. And this is a glorious thing. This is a great thing. This is a very good thing. Look around the world. You see a lot of people being their own little gods and their own lords and running their own lives and you see all the destruction and misery and worthless sadness that comes with it. And not only does it lead to worthless destruction and sadness and grieving in this life, it leads to eternal death. 
the eternal process of dying. We all, we all think like dying is the worst possible process. That's what hell is. An eternal process of dying separated from God who is our source of life. In Christ, we get to live and have fellowship with God, fulfill the purpose we were made for, enjoy his glory, enjoy fellowship with him, enjoy love, joy, peace, the fruits of the Spirit, because we are connected with our source of life. And just like rejection of Christ leads to destruction and death, not just in this world, but in the life to come, fellowship with God leads to love, joy, peace, not just in this life but in the life to come. And the resurrection proves all this. Now we have two options, right? When it comes to the resurrection, there's two simple options. You can believe it or you can disbelieve it. Those are the only two options. It's really simple. This has always been God's way. Remember, think back to the Old Testament. The nation of Israel gets into the promised land. Joshua led them there. In Joshua 24, he ends that book saying, hey, look, you got to choose this day. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve the things of this world, the false gods of this world? Joshua says, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. But there's a choice. There's only two options. There's no neutrality when it comes to God. There's no in-between option here. With the passage we looked at Wednesday night and the passage we're going to look at this morning eventually, I know it's, this is the longest intro ever, but there's two options, right? And they're illustrated for us. Verses 1 to 10, what we saw Wednesday night, that's the path of belief. Verses 11 to 15, the path of disbelief. And Jesus also made it this clear that there's no neutrality. Matthew 12, 30, there's plenty of places he did this, but in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So the first part we looked at, we're not gonna go over all of it because we did Wednesday night. I just wanna point out some highlights the response of belief in verses 1 to 10. We saw the proper response to the resurrection. Remember in verse, chapter 28, the two Marys come to the grave of Jesus on Sunday morning, and Jesus is gone. And there's an angel who says, hey, he's alive. Jesus is alive. He's not here because he's not dead any longer. He is gone. So in verse 6, they find out that Jesus has been raised from the dead, just as he's been promising everybody. In verse 7, they're told to quickly go and notify the disciples of what has taken place. And in verse 9, they actually run in to resurrected Jesus himself. They're literally in his presence. That's when they worship. Verse 9 tells us they worship. Verse 8 tells us also that they had some other responses. There's fear. Which is reasonable, right? Like, could you see this being a somewhat traumatic few days for these ladies and any followers of Christ? You'd left everything already to follow this man, Jesus Christ. You built up this connection with this man, Jesus Christ, and you see him brutally slaughtered right in front of you. Everything you left this world for to follow just 
brutally killed in front of you. And then he's alive again. And then you run into him. This is a pretty traumatic experience. And the presence of God is a fearful and wonderful thing, but it's also great joy. It, is, it says in verse 8, they had great joy. And we also see their response was obedience. They were told, Jesus is alive, you go tell the others. And there was instant obedience. They had a belief, they believed the, the message of the angel, and they responded instantly with obedient action. But many in life don't believe, right? Most don't believe, we know that. And that's the second path that we have illustrated for us in our verses this morning, the response of unbelief. It is a stark contrast to the response of the women who came to the tomb that we read about in verses 1 to 10. In verses 11 to 15, we have the response in the path of the unbeliever. Let's read these verses finally. Verses 11 to 15. Now, while they were on their way, now the they's here, those are the Marys. Remember, the angel said, go tell the disciples. And so, um, and actually, uh, Jesus in verse 10 says, um, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee and there they'll find me. So in verse 11, that's, they're the they. They're the ones who are on their way to go tell the disciples. But while they're on their way, we see another group on their way somewhere else. Some of the guard came into the city, Jerusalem, and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, Pilate, we will win him over and keep, keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, who are the people we see involved here? Let's look at the cast of characters. So the people involved. We have the Jewish guard, first of all. Um, then we have the high priest. And then we get all the elders who also come in. So the religious leaders, this same group that has really had conflict with Jesus from the very beginning, here we see that conflict continue. They've been trying to thwart Jesus, to, to end his ministry from the beginning, yet the conflict continues on. And we have such a contrast here between these women in verses 1 to 10 and now these soldiers here in verses 11 to 15. The women in verses 1 to 10, they run back to the disciples with this good news. Our Savior is raised. They probably were, had no clue what to do with themselves. Again, these are people who had left everything to follow Jesus, who has now been killed. They have no clue what to do with themselves. This is great news. A message of rejoicing that these women are running back to the disciples with. A message of hope. Jesus is alive. And again, as these women are running off to give their message of good news, these soldiers in verses 11 to 15 are running off 
with this very, very bad news for the religious leaders. A message of worry, despair, and failure. Richard France, he puts it this way, the women have a message of hope and victory for the disciples, the guards one of confusion and failure for the priest. Now, were the Jewish leaders worried that something could happen to the body of Jesus after he died? Were they worried about that? Yeah, they were worried about it. We saw it a few weeks ago, right? They were, they were very concerned because they had heard Jesus claiming to be resurrected, all that he would be resurrected, that he had authority over his life. He had authority to lay it down. He had authority to raise it up. Like Jesus had told this to the disciples and the crowds many, many times. And so the religious leaders were worried that something could happen to the body of Jesus. They were worried because, again, the implications, the implications of the resurrection are huge. Do you see how somebody raising from the dead is a huge deal? Yeah. So there's some big implications here. So remember Matthew 27, the end, towards the end, verses 62 to 66. I'm going to read it for you again. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, gathered, gathered together with Pilate, the governor. So these same people here that we're looking at in chapter 28, 11 to 15. These same people get together and say, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that's Jesus, the deceiver said that after three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first because, again, it's a huge deal to be raised from the dead. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So again, this was their fear. That's why these guards were here. The Pilate told the, Roman, the Jewish leaders, use your own guards. There would be temple guards, like the Jews had their own kind of police task force responsible for the temple. Use these guys and go guard the tomb. Make it as secure as you can. And these are the guards who, in verse 11, while the women are rushing to talk to the disciples, are rushing back to Jerusalem to report to the chief priests from their perspective what is very bad news. Jesus is gone. Je and they know he has been raised from the dead. They know the reality of what has happened here. They know now Jesus, everything he ever claimed about being God, about being worthy of worship, being worthy of our absolute devotion, they now know this is 100% true. Everything that Jesus ever said is true. Now, what would be the proper response when you come to this place of realizing that everything Jesus said is true? What is the proper response? Belief. Repentance and belief, right? The same proper response that we should offer. Repentance and belief. But is that the response? No. Does that not blow your mind a little bit? That they, even though now they, they know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they refuse to believe? Does that not blow your mind a little bit? Like how? Don't you think you would, like, 
just think about it purely from a logical human standpoint. Like, don't you think that you would like be like, all right, well, I guess I believe now. Don't you think so? No. The power of unbelief is incredible. The power of sin is incredible. The fact that we are spiritually dead apart from the work of the Holy Spirit makes it impossible for us to believe. And this power of unbelief always amazes me. It does. I even think about it in Revelation. You go read the book of Revelation and the judgments of God are being poured out upon the earth and people know it's God. Like people know that it is God who is judging the earth and pouring this stuff out because of their sinfulness. And you just think, geez, if I'm in their position, I would repent, right? That seems like the logical thing to do. But it's the power of unbelief. Revelation tells us that despite people knowing that this is God and this is his wrath on their sin, instead of repenting in faith, they curse God and they hate God for it. It's just a reminder to us of the power of unbelief and the fact that only the Holy Spirit can enable us to repent and trust in Christ for faith. That's important when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel with others. Just keeping that in mind that, look, you should absolutely be faithful to share the gospel and evangelize as clearly as possible because God uses his church and he uses us as instruments of proclaiming his truth. Like that is his design and we should seek to fulfill that design. But as we look to minister to others and share the gospel with others and influence people in our family, our friends and at work and at school, we do it realizing that we are 100% dependent upon God and his power, the Holy Spirit working in people's lives to accomplish anything. Because the power of spiritual death and unbelief is so strong that until God moves, people will not come to faith. You can't, going back to what I said earlier, people will give you an intellectual objection to the things of God, but it is ultimately about their love of sin and they want to be their own authority in life. So you will never be able to address the intellectual challenges that people have in a way that's going to lead them to faith because it is the Holy Spirit working through the truth of the gospel that brings salvation. These people, the Jewish guards, even the Jewish leaders, they know Jesus is alive. They know that everything he has ever said is true. His claims are true, but there is no repentance. Now, I don't, I'm not a creative person, all right? But I tried to be on this next one, okay? So they are stuck between the rock. See, that's where I tried to be creative. The rock, Jesus Christ, I don't know. Creativity is not my thing, but I try every once in a while. They are stuck between the rock and a hard place, okay? Verses 12 to 13, they have a real dilemma here. They, they get together, the leaders, the elders, this, they, get to, they consult together and they give a large sum of money to the soldiers and say, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. See, they've got a big dilemma because Jesus is gone, all right? It, it, it's done. Jesus came alive. He walked on out. He is gone and they're not going to be able to deny that. They can't go 
tell people like, hey, go look at his body, people are going to want to know what happened. So they've got two options here. Option one, they can admit that he's alive, but that's just not acceptable for them. Not acceptable because as soon as people realize Jesus is alive, that everything he claimed is true, these leaders, the Jewish leaders, lose all authority, they lose all credibility, and their whole system falls apart. This whole system that they've built their human pride upon, their whole system of authority over the people, falls apart because Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. Jesus is the ultimate eternal high priest. We don't need high priest anymore. We don't need this sacrificial system anymore. Jesus Christ fulfilled all that. All of that pointed to Jesus Christ. So it all falls apart for them. So that's not a good option. They can't admit what has really happened here. So the hard place that they go, option two, they can claim to have failed as guards of the tomb. They can fail, they can, they can claim to have failed. They're both bad options, but the second option from their perspective is much more acceptable. Now, it's a really bad career move for the guards, right? Like if that's your job to guard the temple, it's not a really good look if this band of non-impressive ex-fishermen were able to come and steal the body back from the tomb, especially if they did it because you fell asleep on the job. Like, but, so this is the end of their careers, but they get a payment. Verse 12 tells us they get a large sum of money to go along with the lie. And then they also tell him in verse 14, look, if Pilate, the governor, if Pilate hears about this, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it, all right? Like, we've been able to control Pilate so far. We've seen it. Like, Pilate really didn't have any interest in putting Jesus to death, but they talked him into it. Like, Pilate seems to just kind of go with the flow. He doesn't like a lot of conflict with these people, so they're like, look, hey, don't worry about him. We've been controlling Pilate for a while, okay? If, if this gets back to him and he gets mad, we will take care of him. Um, don't worry about it. So we see our third part here, the deal is made, but it fails. The deal is made. Verse 15, these Jewish guards, they take the money and do as they had been instructed. And this story is widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. To this day is when Matthew's writing this. When Matthew's writing this, Matthew's saying, hey, look, to this day, that is still the official position of the Jewish leadership. You know how, like, whenever the government comes out on anything controversial, like, are there aliens, are there ghosts, like, what's going on in the Middle East? Like, there's the official government position, right? Like, they put forth their spokesperson, and the spokesperson's just delivering the company line. This is the government's position. Matthew's saying, hey, to the day that I'm writing this, this is still the story that the Jewish leadership is sticking to. To discredit the resurrection because of all of its implications, they spread this lie among the people. Now here's a question. Was this lie, their plan, effective? Was it effective? I'm going to say no, not at all. Why are we here this morning? Because we believe. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. 
We believe that, uh, we don't believe their story. Their plan was an utter failure. And while there is still a lot of unbelief in this world, look at the history of the church as imperfect as it is. The gospel continues to prevail generation after generation despite all the attempts to put it out. Even when this started, it's just a small band of disciples, of inconsequential mostly people. I, I, no, it was all people. I mean mostly inconsequential people. Um, the, it's, it's still spread. It still continues to prevail. And this isn't because of the greatness of us or the greatness of the people who make up the church. This is because of the greatness of the God and the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. Remember Matthew 16? Jesus told Peter and the disciples that upon this truth of who Jesus is, he was going to build his church, not the disciples, not the apostles. They weren't going to build the church. Jesus, God, was going to build the church. He was going to use them. They were going to be his instruments and their tools, but he is building the church. And that's the truth today. The gospel continues to prevail, not because of us. We are just the instruments. Paul even says that really like, we contain the gospel and the truths of God and the beauty of God, but we do it in clay pots. Like he calls us clay pots that are really very fragile, breakable, unimpressive, because we want everybody to know that the impressiveness is God. The glory is God. And no power of Satan, no scheme that anybody, no matter how powerful, comes up with will prevail against the gospel. The gospel will always prevail. And so for application, are you a believer or unbeliever? Like you fall in one of these two sections. You're either in verses 1 through 10 with the Marys, a believer of the resurrection, responding in obedience and worship and joy to the resurrection, or you are in verses 11 to 15 caught up in a lie, an uh, unbeliever, caught up in a lie. There are only two possible categories. There's no third category for us, us to fall into. Verses 1 to 10, a response of belief to the resurrection and who Jesus Christ is, that is the path to eternal life. Acts 4.12, Paul tells, or Peter tells those he's speaking with that there is no other name by which we may be saved. The only path to reconciliation, to salvation, to fellowship, life in Christ, with God is through Jesus Christ. All other paths, verses 11 to 15, the, are the road of unbelief. They lead to hell and destruction. The, do you love your sin? Like, that is a great question to ask yourself. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you really love sin? Are you impressed with God and Jesus Christ? Or are you impressed with yourself? Don't be impressed with yourself. 
This isn't a knock on any of you because it applies to me and every other human being. We are not impressive, all right? Like, I don't care how smart you are, how good you do in school, how fast you run, how strong you are, how good you are at sports, how cool you are. Like, you're a clay pot. There's nothing to be prideful about in and of yourself. There's nothing impressive. Jesus Christ is impressive. God is impressive. And that doesn't demean us as people. That points us to where our real true source of value is. Look, like the world will fool you with these fake sources of value and they feel good for a little bit, right? Like they will fill you up and make you feel good for a little bit, but it's bankrupt. And at some point that reality hits home and it hits home hard. And by God's grace, it hits home while you're on this earth because then you have the opportunity to repent and find your true value, true hope in him. But at some point it's gonna hit home. And if it doesn't hit home on this earth, at some point it hits home when you're before God at the judgment seat and it is too late because the path of the unbeliever leads to death and destruction, eternal separation from God. So like think of anything good. God is the source of all good. And if you are eternally separated from God, you are eternally living in death, separated from life, separated from anything that is good. Which category are you in? Verses 1 to 10 or verses 11 to 15? If you're in verses 1 to 10, evangelize. Tell others. And go about it with the confidence that the truth will prevail. There's going to be obstacles, trust me. I mean, we're seeing it right here. Matthew's showing us there are going to be obstacles. The world's going to throw things against the gospel and try to stop it. Satan's going to try to stop it, but he can't. The truth of God will prevail because it is the power of God. So as you evangelize and as you serve in the church and as you serve other believers and, and try to encourage other people and disciple other people, do it knowing that it's not you that it depends on. Like it's not about your power or your goodness or your impressiveness, but it is the power of God working through his truth. You can have confidence in that, rejoice in that, and boldly and faithfully go out proclaiming and serving the good news. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for how your truth always wins. Your truth always prevails. We thank you, Lord, that you did raise from the dead and show that everything you ever claimed to be is absolutely true. And I pray that our lives would be consumed with that reality, that every aspect of our being, every aspect of who we are, would eagerly submit to the greatness of who you are and who you have shown to be and help us now to go forth living in the power of the gospel, rejoicing in the power of the gospel and eagerly serving you in everything we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.